Alright, so we're going to be overviewing the book of Acts, Acts tonight. What comes to mind when you think of the book of Acts? Maybe if you had to use one word or one or two words to describe the book of Acts. History. History, church. I like that. The church. Pentecost? The church. Pentecost, that's a big one. Yep, yep. Journeys, yeah. Journeys, okay, good. Those are all good things. Anything else? Lightning. Lightning? Doesn't someone strike that lightning in Acts? Uh, no, no. Oh, you mean who struck down dead? Yeah. Ananias and Sapphira? Yep. Okay. Good. Those are all very good words. So the, uh, the author is Luke, which is the same as the Gospel of Luke. There's not much debate about that. The early church is pretty unified in it, but of course, you can definitely find people who want to fight about that. So... There are people that will argue that it's not Luke, but it definitely, by all, by all appearances, is Luke. Dr. Luke, Doctor Luke, Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke. Though not an original disciple, an eyewitness disciple, he was an eyewitness to the events of the early church. And so, he, when he was writing the gospel, right, necessarily he was not there with Jesus. But for these events, most of which he's there and he's seeing them. He's probably a Gentile. And he is a doctor, which means that we can't read his handwriting and he's late to appointments. And <laughs> No, he's probably very intelligent and he's probably very, most importantly, literate for that society where not a lot of people were literate. The audience, maybe you'll recognize this from last week. I'll read the first few verses of Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he has chosen. So who's this book going to? Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus. Bridget got that. Thank you, Bridget. I appreciate that. That's If you go to Luke 1, you will see that he's referred to as most excellent Theophilus, which... Also, if you watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you can hear a lot of most excellent. <laughs> but in biblical speak, it means he was probably wealthy, probably a Roman official or something like that. And he's probably funding Luke's eyewitness accounts. So he wanted an account for himself, and so we take Theophilus' account. Notice that he said in the first book, right? And so therefore, this is kind of by in inferring that this is the second book. Sometimes people refer to them as Luke-Acts, as kind of one, one thing. So his purpose is to record selective events that happened after Jesus ascended. And I say that selective word because that's important because he doesn't record every single thing that happened, right? And sometimes that's an argument you will hear from uh, opponents of Christianity, uh, that there's mistakes or there's omissions or there's things. The idea is never that they're going to record every single thing that happened. Right. This spans over three decades uh, in the early church, so it's impossible. Um, but it is the events of the early church, the Acts of the Apostles. You'll probably see that at the, as the title of your book, the beginning of the early church. Uh, one commentator said the purpose of the book is to edify Christians by recounting how God's plan coming to fulfillment in Jesus had continued to unfold in the early church. And so we have the pleasure on Wednesday mornings of studying uh, the book of Acts with uh, the men at the diner. And so we're very familiar with God's unfolding plan 
and how the apostles keep making reference to God's plan. And now we see it continuing to unfold. As far as the date, yeah, like many other books in the Bible, you will find guys all over the map as to when they think the date is. Most scholars put Acts in the mid-80s, not the 1980s, because that'd be bad music in even worse fashion. But this is 80s A.D. And so logically, though, they are thinking that this flows. If he wrote Luke first, this flows after Luke. And so if we put Luke somewhere in this 70s-ish, right, then this probably follows logically in the 80s. So, As far as a genre, this is history. We heard one of those words. This is uh, eyewitness testimony. This is narrative. It's a bunch of things. And so it's kind of exciting. It is uh, action. It is uh, a, a recording of some tremendous miracles and acts and God establishing his church. So, so that's kind of the intro material. And so what I thought we'd do is spend some time looking over some of these key themes and then jump around to some of these passages and so key theme number one, we kind of already hinted at, is the plan of God. The plan of God in the life and times of Jesus Christ, and then the establishment of his church. What are some things that we know of, of the life and times of Jesus Christ? What, what, what did Jesus do? Let's, let's start it with the bottom shelf questions for tonight. What did Jesus do? Miracles. Okay, definitely, Miracles. Carried over from Luke as well. What else would he be recording? It's kind of in the first couple chapter or first chapter or so, because before Jesus disappears, shall we say, what does he record for us? Right in chapter one, starting in verse eight. The ascension. The ascension. Yes. Yep. So this is where Jesus ascends, right? So Jesus resurrects from the dead. First Corinthians tells us that he's around for about a month. He eats with people, he sees people, and then Acts records the ascension. What's the ascension again? I always forget what that means. It goes up. He ascends up where? Heaven. Heaven to be back with the Father again. Right? So things like that, right? So let's look at that. Let's look at Acts 6. Or I'm sorry, Acts 1, 6 through 11. I did that to Ken this morning, and the poor guy was off and running, reading the wrong passage of Scripture. It was my fault. I switched the two numbers. It was my fault. So starting in verse 6 of Acts 1, So when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're all excited. Like, hey, since you raised, you got resurrected from the dead and all, does this mean we can get rid of those pesky Romans? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or season that the Father has affixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? I absolutely love that. Just like, what are you guys looking at? Then this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we see the ascension recorded for us by Luke. Right? We see Jesus' 
last words, so to speak, before he ascends. Right? So the plan of Jesus, we also see the plan of Jesus being testified in some of the early sermons. Namely, Peter, if we look at Peter, um, maybe starting at verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So we see the plan of God. You crucified. We always giggle at men's Bible study because how many times do the apostles remind these guys that, oh yeah, Jesus, that Jesus, the one you killed? Yeah, yeah that guy. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he says, hey, this is the plan of God. This was what it was, right? He was the Messiah. He was attested to you from God. The mighty works and wonders gave verification about who he was, right? He was there. You rejected him. You crucified him. He was resurrected because he is uh, not able to be held by death. So we see the plan of God, firstly, in the book of Acts. And we could go on and on with other, other instances of the plan of God. We also see, second theme maybe, the formation of the early church. So after, we've got Jesus giving them kind of the, the marching orders in chapter 1. And he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, which is definitely one of the other themes, and we'll talk about it. And you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses here, and in the regions, and to the ends of the earth. But if we see the formation of the early church, maybe we can fast forward to chapter 6. And that will give us some clues as to what's happening. So um, the believers, sorry, if we back up maybe to chapter 4, maybe in verse 32, we can see some characteristics of the early church. Now when the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their, watch this, testimony, their eyewitness account to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. So what kind of things do we see just from that little bit about the testimony of the early church? What did it look like? Charity. Charity, okay. Taking care of people who had needs. Yep. What else do we see about the early church just in those couple of verses there? They were of one heart and one mind. Okay. They were united. Yep. We see charity. We see unity. Mm -hmm. Very important. Those yep. are very good things. What's that? I said grace was upon them. Grace was upon them. Grace was upon them. Yep. Mm -hmm. Who else do we see in the mix? The apostles. Yep. What are the apostles doing? Giving their testimonies. Giving their testimonies. So we see, right? Say, oh no, the Bible was written so many years after and it's all like a game of telephone and it's all inaccurate. No, the apostles were on the scene in the early church communicating these things. They saw these things with their own eyes. What we talked about last week with the controlled oral tradition, right? Yeah, they didn't write everything down yet, but the apostles were telling the stories, and the apostles were the ones that were the eyewitnesses. So if Caleb walks up and tells a different version of the resurrection, Peter's going to be like, mm, that's not the way it was, Caleb. Sorry, bro. Mm -hmm. I was there. 
Sorry to pick on you, Caleb. Um, in chapter 5, we see the account of Ananias and Sapphira struck by lightning, or else just struck by the Holy Spirit, right? Could be lightning. Could be. Um, they're selling the property, and they give the proceeds to the church, or some of the proceeds, right? which they lied. And they said, yes, this is how much we sold the property for, and then they give some of it to the church and keep some of it for themselves. If they had it, we lied. They said, well, we sold it for X amount, and we reserved this for ourselves. Yeah. They would have been okay, but they lied. I think so. I think the big thing is they lied, they lied. and as we'll see right. as we get deeper into it, right, the... Uh, uh, yeah, that was the thing. They lied to the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, it's like, he says, like, what's the big deal? Like, it, you could have just sold it for any amount, but why did you have to tell us? Yeah, I sold it for $150,000, and here it is. Well, a lie is good or bad? What do you think? Is a lie good or bad, Paul? <laughs> he says, lie is bad! Yeah, so that, that was the big problem, right? But we see people selling their things, their possessions, their property, giving them to the early church. In verse 12 of chapter 5, many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. We see signs and wonders in the early church. We see the formation, getting back to chapter 6 where I started, of elders and deacons. Can somebody read for us maybe uh, the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6? While I sip my tea like a doctor. I'm sorry, I think he's out. Somebody read Acts 6, 1 through 7 for us. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews... Grecian? Christian uh, Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Harmanus, You're doing great. Nicholas from Antioch. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem <clears throat> increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the <coughs> Okay. Thank you. What else do we see in the early church based upon what Joanne just read for us? Who are the leaders? The twelve. The twelve? Okay. You see that? What's going on? Do we see people, again, taking care of other people, distributing food? There arose a complaint that said, hey, these people are getting neglected. So as, uh, presumably they went to the apostles, or otherwise we'll see later, the elders, right? That's what, they, that's what they transformed into, right? And the elders said, what? Is it right that we should give up what we're doing in order to wait on tables? What are they doing? Praying, ministry. They're sharing yep. the gospel. Yep. 
Yeah, verse 2, right? It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So we see them proclaiming the gospel, right? So we need, we need a division of labor here. So this is where many think that the, the diaconate came from. And so they had deacons that were created to do the work of the ministry, much like we have here at Highlands Bible Church, right? And so we have a division of labor that we think started here in the Bible, in the early church, that the elders are in charge of, as Mel said uh, in verse 4, devoting ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, right? And then the deacons are kind of the boots on the ground that run the intricacies of the ministry, the details. So we see elders and deacons in the early church. And we see those people being selected in a certain way. Um, men full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We see them being prayed over, put their hands on them in commissioning. So they didn't just pick any old guy with a pulse. They had to be qualified. Yeah. Yep. And Paul lays out the qualifications to Timothy and, and Titus later on. So we see the role of elders and deacons. We also see martyrdom and persecution. Who is the first martyr? Sorry. Sorry, Barlow. Sorry, Barlow. <laughs> Sorry. That's right. It's all good. All right, so we see in the very next chapter, we see Stephen uh, being stoned to death, right? And why was he stoned to death? What did he do first? What's that big part of chapter 7 there? Preached. Yeah, he preached. He preached an expositional sermon. He went full, uh, what we call kerygma, where it's just, he rolls out the whole story of the Bible, like from beginning to end, and he puts it in context. The preaching of the word, right? And so we see that. We see many other times as we get more deeper into it that Paul is persecuted, that Paul is stoned, that other apostles are arrested. Right, we see that. And so we see martyrdom and persecution. Why were they being persecuted? What, was, what made everybody so angry? Well, if you're telling the people in charge that it's your fault, <laughs> you, you crucified this holy man. Yeah. They're yeah. not going to be very kind yeah. about you continuing to tell others yeah. what they did. If you uh, were to read all of Stephen's sermon and you get all the way up to verse 50, so he's kind of laying the groundwork in chapter 7, and then he gets into verse 51, and then he just drops the bomb. If you look at verse 51, after laying all of this out for them, all of the history, all of what, and then he just unloads on them. You stiff-necked people! uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. I love this. Which one of, your, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one who now betrayed and murdered, and you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's it. <laughs> we need to kill him. Right? He just unloads on them. So yeah, it was, it was he goes, the disciples go after and the, the early apostles and the early church people go after these guys, right? And of course, they don't like that. So they were speaking very boldly. Right? So I guess a question for us, right? If the early church experienced persecution and martyrdom, what should we expect? Same thing. 
Same thing, right? In different levels, right? Yeah. Jesus tells us in this world you will have trouble. Yeah. I mean, where we be having, where we be in uh, Sudan or Iran or some parts of Africa, you know, we wouldn't be gathered here together with these, you know, in a public building, right? Because the police would kick in our door and take us all to jail, right? The right to lifers are being arrested. The what? The right to lifers are being arrested for yep. standing up for. Yeah, life. so we definitely have persecution in this country, right. but it's in different, it's in different, a different form, you know. Yeah, one could make an argument that Nashville, and I think it was true, that Nashville was targeted towards Christians. It was a Christian school, and, and the shooter went in there to do that, right? And we might see more of that, and I hope we don't. But by and large, right, our persecutions are fairly minimal compared to what goes on in countries that are very hostile to the gospel. That's ramping up in Canada, though. They're, sure. They're after the parents, I mean the pastors. Yeah. And um, it's really ramping up there. Yeah. And this guy actually got murdered, you know, it's pretty... Exactly, yeah. In a brutal way. In a very brutal way. Yeah. Death by being hit by large rocks yeah. is a very Ooh. brutal way. So we pray the first one did it, so he didn't have so much pain. Yeah, but that, that, that's, no. a, that's the pain of it. I know. Yeah. It takes a while. So yeah, another, another thing that we see in the formation of the early church. We also see, as we saw, miracle signs and wonders. We see healings. What other things do we see as a miracle, signs, and wonders? What was the question? What other what what things do we see as miracles, signs, and wonders? I gave you one. Did they restore life? The healings. Yep. To a young fellow that fell out the window. Yep. When, when Paul preached too long, the guy fell asleep and fell out the window. Uh, we see. That's epic. Uh, we see them driving out demons. Driving out demons, wow. absolutely. Yep, we definitely see that. Healing the, healing the sick. Healing the sick, yep. What happened um, at Pentecost, which we'll talk about in a few oh, moments? Speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues. Language. Right. Speaking in tongues, right? And, yeah. and it's very clear in the context of Acts, in Acts 2, right, that's the speaking in tongues... People are hearing these things in their own language, right? So these are, these are known languages, right? This is not just utterances that people don't understand. In the beginning, that was the identification upon the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Sure, yeah. Initially, and then... Yeah. Are they speaking different languages, or are they just speaking and people are hearing it in their own language? <laughs> Yes, uh, maybe. Don't know. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Could be. We maybe. don't know. We, we were, we were, yeah, yeah. I remember you asked that same question asked on a Wednesday morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I would think they were speaking in various languages because um, the listeners thought they were drunk. Yeah. Let's so, go there. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Okay. Right? Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So people are there from other nations. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So it could be, Caleb. Right? And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own langu native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamia, all of that, that those people are hearing and understanding these words. 
right? And all were amazed and perplexed. And what does this mean? Verse 13, but others mocking said they're drunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I absolutely love Peter because then he gets up in verse 14. He says, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Yep. It's still in the day. It was later, you know, he would be drunk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was like noon. That was the implication. Yeah. Yeah. That was the implication. <laughs> Yes, no, you're, you're right. We can't read into it like that. But <laughs> it's funny that he says that. But um, yeah. yeah, so I don't, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is. Maybe People say the Bible can't be funny. Oh no, the Bible but, is very funny. Yeah, but it's, it's, right here. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not absolutely clear. Jesus spends his first moments after his resurrection playing an elaborate prank on his disciples. Yeah, on the Emmaus road. Yeah. So this is uh, glossalia, right, as it says in the Greek. This is speaking in different languages. What is the purpose of all these? I think I put it in your outline, true to my form. Right? It's a verification, right? We see these signs and wonders and stuff, and it verifies that the apostles are who they say they are. It verifies their gospel, right? It's true. What were the purposes of Jesus' signs and wonders? Same thing. Verify him. Mm -hmm. Right? Jesus said in John, if you don't believe me, believe the works. Like, what more proof do you need? So, we see miracles, signs, and wonders uh, in that. And we see in that the verification of the apostolic gospel. Right? We see the new people of God. The inclusion of the Gentiles. We start to see this is no longer the Jews now. Right? This is the Gentiles as well. We see Peter preaching to Cornelius. I believe that's in chapter 10, I think, or somewhere thereabouts. Yeah, Peter preaching to a, a Gentile soldier. And Peter getting the vision that all food is now clean to eat. So we see that the, the, the church being multi-ethnic, not just Jewish anymore. Um, I have a note for 1126. What does that say? When they had found him, they brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Ah, yes. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Meaning little Christs. So we see the people of God now having a name. They're Christians. They're no longer Jews, Gentiles, or Parthenians, or Scythians, or whatever they are. They're Christians. And that becomes their identity. So this is where it gets a little slippery because the social gospel, progressive gospel slips in and says, well, this is the way that it was and this is the way that it always should be then. And we could go too far with that and lump in. We're not talking ethnicities here. Now we're talking LGBTQ or other things that are sinful and saying, well, we're all the people of God. That's what we saw in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with lumping in LGBTQ with what we see in the multinational because uh, it's an action. Yeah. Isn't it? it is an action. The, the Christians stop doing, uh, I don't remember where it is in Acts, but they all get together and they burn all their sorcery books. Yeah. yeah. Because mm-hmm. they're like, well, we're Christians now, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can find yeah, so it, it's a rationalization of, of sin, right? Homosexuality being a sin. And we, we can't go too far and say, well, no, that's the early church was accepting of everyone. Like, well, not if you read the rest of the Bible. In what sin is. That's not saying we wouldn't welcome someone in to hear the gospel. Of course we would. But 
that doesn't that means that the people of God, the church, can never include being okay with sin right, in our midst. And Paul's going to make that abundantly clear in his other letters. Nineteen nineteen is where they burned their sorcery. They had a book burning. Yeah. Nice. Also, in the formation of the early church, we see the ministry of the Apostle Paul, which is huge. He's called the second founder of Christianity. And he would, of course, rejected that title. But one uh, book said, spiritually he was a Jew, legally he was a Roman, and intellectually he was a Greek. So, by heart he was a Christian. There you go. I like that. By heart he was a Christian. Right? Who was Paul before he was Paul? Saul. He was Saul. Was Saul a good guy or a bad guy? <laughs> Pharisee of Pharisees. Pharisee of Pharisees. When when Stephen was being stoned to death, where was this guy Saul? Standing there, holding their coats. He was standing there, nodding his approval. Yep. Chapter eight, verse one, and Saul approved of his execution. Right. And so, yeah, we see Paul. Uh, on the scene as a represent, representative of the Jewish Pharisees, right? What, and he is persecuting the church actively. Again, for the same reasons, right? He, he's doing that out of a sense of zeal, right? He's doing that because he believes he's right, right? He's, he's persecuting this, this cult, this thing that is taking away from pure Judaism, which he's devoted his whole life to, right? So he definitely has a lot of zeal for that. But then he is converted. In chapter 9, we see uh, verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, what's the way? Christians. Christians, yep. Uh, found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So that's what Paul was doing prior to his conversion, right? Verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Wait a minute, I thought, he, Jesus is gone. Jesus ascended. So how is Paul persecuting Jesus? Well, isn't that where we get our living God? Yeah. So you mess with the church, you mess with Jesus, right? Pretty, pretty big link there, right? He says, you're persecuting my church, you're persecuting me. And then he tells him, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Right, so this is kind of a, a summary. Elsewhere it says that in, during this time he received revelations, right, directly from the Lord. So that's how we can say Paul was an eyewitness, because he received these, these things, even though he wasn't a, a disciple in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, wasn't part of the twelve, but he received this from Jesus himself. And so that's how we can say that Paul was an eyewitness. So he's dramatically converted 
right? And he goes from being an enemy of the church to its greatest missionary and greatest church planner. And so, your surprise is we have maps of Paul's missionary journeys. Thank you, Ken. I expected a little more excitement. <laughs> yeah, he maps. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, so watch this. Here's your special treat. Ooh. Wow, cool. So look at how much this is his first missionary journey, right? See, I thought you liked that. Paul's like what I missed. I'll do it again for you, Paul. Don't worry. Here we go. Ready? Watch the blue line. Watch the blue line. This is the Apostle Paul. Look at him. Look at him go. So fast. Yeah, if only this were real time, right? How was travel back then? Was it easy and wonderful and comfortable? And you flew no. first class? And they didn't go on a cruise ship either. They didn't go on a cruise ship either, that's for sure. <laughs> it was a ship. Was it dangerous? Yes. Was it time consuming? Yes. Yes. It was absolutely. He went many days without food, many days of, of hard travel, many days of delays and waiting for tides and winds and everything like that. Right? He went to Cyprus in the first journey, uh, Perga, Antioch, both Antiochs, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, a couple other places, right? When you say both Antiochs, I thought Antioch was one place. No, there's, there's Syrian Antioch and there's okay. something else. Okay. What he said. <laughs> there's two on the map. I what the second one is. Um, there's one over here. Can you see that? Ooh, yeah. There's one over there. Oh, I can draw stuff? No way. A pen. Oh, that's epic. Well, anyway. Antioch over there, and there's another one over here. Okay. Which one was it when Christians were first called Christians? The first one, the big one. Syrian Antioch. Syrian. Over there? Yep. The right one. The right Barnabas was there. So those first, that little line, this little line, i got to get rid of that thing. That little black line that goes off into the sea. <laughs> Here, that little black line. That is uh, where Mark left them. And so if we look at uh, 13, I think it's 13, 17 or 13, 13. John 13. Acts 13, 13. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Or as this map has it, John just went swimming in the sea. <laughs> Not sure why it does that. But. So it says, sudden, there's no comment. just says that John or Mark, John Mark, left them. Right? It's, it's going to be very important in a little while. So that was his first journey. Let's look at his second journey. Equally awesome. Wow. See, pastors get all the maps, man. Did they give you this when you graduated? They gave you the program? <laughs> no. Is this something just for doctors? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the white line, it's hard to see, but it's currently going across the agency and heading to Greece. This is Paul and Silas. Okay, he's coming up to Ephesus now. Silas really slowed him down. Yep. And then he's going back up to Jerusalem, it looks like there in Antioch. Right? 
So there's a blue line that's right over there, right? And that heads over to Cyprus. And what that is, is that if we go to 1536, you can see that. 1536, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. That's super important, right? Because it looks a little bit like his first journey. So now he's going back. And he's seeing how they're doing. And he's seeing how the churches are being established, right? He says, let's go back. Uh, in 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. But Paul thought it was best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark and with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia and strengthened the churches. So that little line there, right, is where they separated. Barnabas and Mark go down to Cyprus. And Paul and Silas take the white line and go all over and strengthen the churches that they had planted already. But we see a disagreement. Mm -hmm. Are disagreements always bad? Was this like something that went awry? Like, was there a divine purpose behind this disagreement, maybe? In all things? People are like, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we see the gospel really splitting, in a sense. And we see more ground being covered and more churches being strengthened, right? Paul and Mark do reconcile. Yeah. Yeah, towards the end. Right. Second Timothy four verse eleven. Okay. Only, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. There you go. I think he ended up being one of the scribes too, didn't he? Or did he? Uh, he was in prison. Maybe. I'm not maybe. sure. I, 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 don't, I thought I read that, but maybe not. Could be. But they, they, um, they. Um, they made up? They did. So God works in all circumstances, right? We also see in chapter 16, in the middle of uh, Paul's second journey, a young fellow named Timothy who's going to be very, very important in the future. Uh, chapter 16, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. A Greek. Bad day for Timothy. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for their observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Timothy's going to be a really important guy in Paul's world. Right? He's going to write two letters to him where we get some really important doctrine in that, right? Um, he circumcised him, okay, uh, because, right, he, he is entering into Jewish territory, right? And so, therefore, that's really important to minister in Jewish territory, right? Um, what they're talking about there is what happened in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. So there was a big council meeting that said, like, okay, what do we do with these Gentiles? Are they supposed to observe the law or not? And they came together and they decided no. And they gave him a couple things that they had to focus on. So Paul and now Timothy kind of do this victory lap to go to the rest of their, their, their churches that they planted and say, guess what? 
here are the only things you have to worry about obeying in the law. And they were very excited about that. It was a lot less burdensome because there was false teaching already. People were saying that, yeah, you, it's, it's belief in Jesus Christ, but you also have to obey the whole law, right? Which was the dietary laws. Oh, yeah. Dietary laws and circumcision, and <coughs> all the feast festivals. festivals. Yeah, yep. festivals, everything. They said no. So Timothy arrives on the scene, and they go on to minister in Philippi, which we get, you know, Paul writing to the Philippians, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. So that's his second journey. Let's look at his third journey. So exciting. Animated maps. I mean, come on, who has this stuff? So he doesn't write any letters to the Marines that out of scripture that we know of? Or does he just, does he write them and they're just not in the Bible? I don't know. We don't have any record of We don't, yeah. He could have. We know that Paul definitely wrote a lot more things. Other apostles wrote more things and are recorded for us. A lot of it's just lost from antiquity. But we also know that God and the inspired preservation of scripture if we needed it we would have it right? so on his third journey he goes to Ephesus he goes to Greece he goes back to Jerusalem this this dramatic scene in Acts uh, after Ephesus where is the scene on the beach oh in Acts uh, 20 there's this dramatic scene where Paul's like I'm going to Jerusalem and they're like terrible idea you're gonna die and Paul's like I know <laughs> I, got, I gotta go to Jerusalem all right is that when he was taking the uh, money back to Jerusalem because um, the church in Jerusalem was not they weren't being able to work I'm not sure you might be right I'd have to dig into 20 to see that or before that I'm not sure does anybody else know if that's the case I'm not sure if that is I think he was going to Jerusalem just to, like he was going to any other place, right? Just to yeah. continue to strengthen the church, especially kind of headquarters, right? How many, how many miles did, did Paul, they figured Paul went over the, over the three? Uh, That's a lot. <laughs> I'm just looking at I'm that. sure somebody's, somebody's added it up. Wow. What's the timeline? Like how long? Wow. Years, decades. Years. How many years? Yeah, over how many years yeah. was that? Wow. Was the three journeys? Yeah, it was a lot. A lot of years. Wow. Yeah, and again, you know. These, Just as much by sea as these journeys are, Yeah, yeah. So Paul does indeed go to Jerusalem. It's recorded for us in Acts 21. Right? And he is uh, arrested in the temple because, of course, he got himself into trouble just about immediately upon arriving in Jerusalem. Right? And then he gets arrested, and he conveniently tells the people hey, uh, that arrested him, hey, guess what? Um, would you do this to a Roman citizen? Like, you're just going to arrest me? And they're like, whoa, hey, you're a what? And Paul's a Roman citizen. Right? By birth, he's a Roman citizen. And as he get, got arrested, uh, one of the privileges of being a Roman citizen is he can appeal his case all the way to Caesar. And that's what he did. Oh, wow. He said, I'm going to appeal my case to Caesar. And so, in the interim, it tracks his, his uh, journey to Rome. I think I actually do have an animated map of going to Rome. <laughs> there it is, Paul's journey to Rome. Check it out, Paul. It's awesome. We get, that's a big sea voyage right wow. there. Yeah. Wow, wow. Coming up to Italy. 
boot. And the boot. He jumps right on the boot. So he goes to Rome. And if we go to the end of Acts, Acts 28, it just kind of, he's in Rome, he's arrested, he's in house arrest for actually a couple of years. And people come to see him and he continues to write, he continues to, to minister to others. But it leaves us hanging about Paul's resolution. Like, what happened to Paul? Um, the very last two verses of Acts 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So for better or for worse, he was able to work and minister and do his thing in Acts. Does Paul die? Yes. <laughs> he does. You do. <laughs> the Apostle Paul. Don't worry, we're not talking about you got a long life ahead of you. <laughs> History tells us uh, through the church fathers, guys like Eusebius and Tertullian, tell us that he was martyred, most likely beheaded, sometime in the mid-60s, uh, probably by Nero, eventually. And we see Paul in 2 Timothy 2, writing to his protege, and saying, this is probably very near his death, 2 Timothy 2, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and at the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, but the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Most guys think this is probably just about as close to Paul's uh, execution as possible. He's writing this to his prose. You can hear his voice like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen soon, and I'm totally okay with it. Right? Very, very inspirational of how to finish well. Right? Fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. A couple other themes to just work through here in our final moments. Another big theme of Acts is that the last days have begun. If we jog back to Acts chapter 2, where we see the Holy Spirit coming, verse 16, this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will see dreams, and it goes on, right? So that's the stuff that's happening right then and there mm -hmm. at Pentecost. So we are in the last days. Uh, last days started when Jesus ascended. And so sometimes you'll hear, hear people say, oh, look at the news, we're in the last days. It's like, well, we've, we've been in the last days mm -hmm. since Jesus stay, ascended. Stay off of YouTube? Is that what Yes, stay off of YouTube. <laughs> the caution is going too far with yeah. newspaper prophecies, right? We look yeah. at the news headlines and we're like, oh, look, this is... Yeah. So Acts gives us one of the best, uh, best framings of, of mm -hmm. eschatology and saying everything's the last days, right? What are you going to do different if you don't? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we should we should be living our life like it is, like right. the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Well, we see another major theme, salvation in Jesus. He's very, very clear. Uh, since we're in chapter 2, Acts 2.21, It shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 2.47, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we see this salvation this comes through Jesus. 4.12 says there's no other name given among men or under heaven by which you may be saved. Right? It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. We were talking this morning at Bible study. Justification by faith is taught in Acts. Right? It is those who believe in Jesus. Right? Sometimes people say, well, justification by faith, that's only a, a, a you know, Paul wrote that in his, in his letters to the churches. It's like, no, we see Luke recording that in Acts very quickly. Acts 13, mm-hmm. uh, 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this man, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Watch this. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from one which you, which you could not be freed of by the law of Moses. Yeah. So salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, clearly taught in the book yeah, of Acts. My translation makes it even clearer by saying they're justified. And there you everyone go. who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified yeah. through the law of Moses. Yeah. Yeah. Two more big themes. One of them, the power of the Word of God. I don't know if you caught that in some of the things we are looking at. The Word of God was what was being proclaimed, and the Word of God was what was yeah. spreading, and the Word of God is what was building the church. Uh, 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. Mm -hmm. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And we see the word of God doing the work of God. Maybe we'll hit one more, 1224. But the word of God increased and multiplied. We see that time and time again. I have a good quote from C.K. Barrett. Luke's stress on the proclamation of the word shows that the word itself was the decisive factor and that the church is the agency of salvation only insofar as it provides the framework for which the preaching of the word takes place. Mm-hmm. So it's not the church itself that saves, but what the church does in proclaiming the word of God. Is that what saves? And so we look at kind of what's going on in mainstream megachurch evangelicalism, right? And we see more gimmicks, we see more attractionalism, we see more programs, more entertainment, more emotional manipulation, smoke, lights, and lasers. Is that what's going to grow the church? Or is it the Word of God? We see clearly in Acts it is the Word of God. That's what built the early church. And last but certainly not least, we see the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, a massively important and significant event in the church. Remember Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit would come after he ascended. And he said, in fact, it has to be this way. And he was talking to the disciples in John 14 and John 16. He's like, it's better that I go. And then the Holy Spirit will come. And then the Holy Spirit, he said in chapter 1 of Acts, will come upon you and you'll have power to be my witnesses, right? To be the church. So Pentecost, huge thing. We read that uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So the Holy Spirit coming on the church. We also see 
the deity of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is represented in that account with Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. Um, look at verse 3. Peter reprimanding Ananias. Uh, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your hearts? You have not lied to men, but to God. Mm-hmm. Peter says that the Holy Spirit is God. You lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. One of the great places we can go to for uh, biblical proof of the deity of the Holy Spirit. But true to form of what we were just talking about with the power of the word, right? We see the Holy Spirit in relation to the word of God. The word of God works and the Holy Spirit works through the word of God. I think it was Piper that said something like the Holy Spirit flies in formation behind the preaching of God's word. And so hopefully as me or other faithful people are proclaiming the word of God, right? The Holy Spirit is right behind that word being preached Convicting, opening people's eyes, right? Encouraging the church. Ephesians 6 in the armor of God calls the word the sword of the spirit for a reason. And so it's not one or the other. It's not just the Holy Spirit apart from God's word. Neither is it God's word apart from the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts, it's both. Spirit working through the word. I've heard it put illuminating. Great word. Yep, the spirit illuminating the word of God. Yep, causing it to make sense. That divine two by four that comes out smacks you in the forehead, right? Mm -hmm. So it's vital to note this proper relationship, right? Again, it's not one or the other. It's both. It's got to be both. Likewise, if somebody were to say, right, you know, the Holy Spirit said to me, it's like, okay, well, that better be linked up with God's word. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're saying. Right. And likewise, if you're doing ministry of the word, without the Spirit's power, it's dead. It's mm-hmm. dead orthodoxy. It's dead legalism. So, Other thoughts, comments, questions, encouraging remarks? Disparaging remarks? Cool maps. Cool maps. <laughs> <laughs> Makes up for the cartoon. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got to show something moving on the screen. You know? <laughs> you know, we're used to special effects, you know. I know. Sorry. And all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will have you know that the preaching of the book of Acts it was one of the most significant things in the in the planting of Highlands Bible Church. Um, when we were at Green Pond and we were talking about how we are going to kind of Green Pond was around for almost fifty years by that point, never even thought of planting a church. And so, so how do we help people understand the necessity of church planting and God doing God's work through God's church? So we decided to preach through the book of Acts. And so we preached Sunday mornings through the book of Acts. And um, it is hard to preach through the book of Acts and not see that God does his work through the local church. And we see all the missionary journeys of Paul and planting churches all over the place. And so 
it was a beautiful thing. And so we remember uh, fondly the preaching of the book of Acts. Remember that, Mel? Mm-hmm. Good old days. Acts <laughs> meant nothing so. to me growing up. No? The priest would, you know, grab a piece here and grab a piece there over many years. It wasn't until I read the whole thing in context yeah. in order that it really was overwhelming. Yeah. It's one of the most, yeah. you know, narrative, it's an exciting narrative, you know, you kind of get swept up in it. Yeah. Also, uh, between Luke and Acts, Luke has more words in the New Testament than Paul. Really? And the Paul, Paul has more books, but Luke has more words between his gospel and wow. Acts. Cool. That was a trick question on my New Testament quiz. college, who wrote more of the Bible in one count? I like it. The answer is Luke. Very cool. The doctor. <laughs> All right. Well, let me pray for us. I'll return you to your Wednesday evenings. Father, we do thank you for uh, your preservation of the Word of God, uh, your inspiration of, of men like Luke to write these things down so that we, uh, thousands of years later, can see them and, and read them and be encouraged by them. Thank you that you still do your work through your church, and your church does the work through your word and your spirit. Uh, Lord, help us as we seek to be faithful at Highlands to do both of those things faithfully. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.